Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Bill Sheriff, who is the CEO of Encore Energy, the TSXV-listed uranium junior with assets in the US. Um, he talks to us about his strategy of employing M&A uh, to find their place in the market. And if you want our opinion and views on that, you can get that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you can also find company reports, training uh, courses, uh, and, and summaries of other interviews that we've done. And of course, uh, macro commentary from experts from all around the world and a thriving community of investors sharing their ideas and thoughts with each other. And if you go there now, there's a seven-day free trial. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, Bill, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. It's good to see you. Good to be back. Yeah, it was May. I, didn't speak to, I haven't spoken to you since May. A lot has happened. How have you been? I'd say it's quite an uh, eventful year, as no doubt. Yeah, yeah, it has been. And you've been a busy boy as well. Um, so where are you? you? You staying at home and avoiding people or are you kind of back at the office yet? Yeah, we're, we're still uh, based in southwest Colorado and uh, you know, watch it, watching the uh, various events unfold in, in the U.S. this year. It's uh, particularly interested with the political situation and, and the unrest uh, across the country. So it's a little town in southwest Colorado, beautiful mountains, not a bad place to uh not a bad seat for the show. Yeah, not 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 bad at all. I mean, for me, it's I always describe it as you know just you know TV gold. Um, both both uh, sides of the house have got their gloves off and uh, fighting dirty. It seems certainly making headlines. <laughs> yeah, dispense with the niceties and get right to business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Which is what we should do. So why don't we kick off with uh, one minute overview of what Encore is, and I'll pick it up from there. Sure, sure. Uh, Encore is a, a company that, uh, of course, was born out of energy metals during the last boom in uh, 2004 to, to eight, and uh, has been in a period of real quiet, uh, quietness or quiescence and uh, just waiting for the return of the uranium market. We've been quite negative for a, a decade and have just recently become quite, uh, quite positive. Uh, we think the uh, metrics have changed and uh, we've uh, got an experienced team. We want to remain focused in the U.S., which is the world's largest nuclear consumer, and uh, work our way towards uh, being a, uh, at first a, a U.S. Uh, in situ producer and, and uh, work our way towards dominance in that field. Fantastic. Okay. And we're going to come on to uh, what you've been up to. been very, very busy um, of, of late. Um, let's start with some of the, the macro stuff, if you don't mind. I saw an announcement from you guys congratulating uh, the DOC on the RSA agreement. Okay. So... For, for people, that's the Russian suspension agreement. Um, you feel that was the best deal they could do? Well, I, I think, you know, realistically, yes, because, uh, you know, the nuclear utilities, of course, wear a couple of hats in this. Uh, when, when we supported domestic uh, industry and uh, however, we'd like for you to work for subsistence wages, if that, and provide us a dirt cheap product for our reactors. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of um, you know, mixed messaging, you know, shall we say. And uh, so you've really got several parties at the table. It's not the two that you, you think of uh, being the U.S. government and the Russians. It's, it's quite, a, quite a mixture. And in fact, uh, of course, we've been involved at the table as well as, as with most of our other uh, industry members. So um, given the number of people are in the room to get an agreement like this, I think is, is a, you know, a positive development. It's uh, you know beyond satisfactory. Is it ideal? Probably not. You know, if we were writing it, I'm sure it'd have a few more uh, uh, restrictions and, and a few more benefits for uh, domestic miners. 
but but all in all, it's you know I think it's a fair, good, good approach. And some of the really hidden aspects of the program that kick in two or three years down the road really, really will benefit the U.S. domestic industry. Uh, I think the overall agreement provides a firm undertoning or underpinning for the market. Uh, a, there's certainty. B, there's some U.S. Uh, utilities that uh, apparently have overcontracted uh, that will have to uh, be back into the market as a result of, of the definitive nature of this uh, agreement. But, uh, you know, I, I think you know, one, of the, one of the overlooked ones that you have to read quite a ways down, even in the UXC paper to, to come across is, uh, uh, you know, in, in the exemptions from the agreement for products that are reentering the U.S., provided that they have a domestic uh, original source on the uranium production. And while it's not a headline grabber, it's, it's really a big benefit for us. And it kicks in, uh, you know, in three years. And of course, uh, Uranium market's always forward-looking, and, and an event that's coming in three years will be, uh, you know, manifest in the market, uh, you know, considerably before that three-year period. Certainly within a couple of years, and uh, we we think it may be as early as uh, eighteen months. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I want, I want to get your view on that one in a second, because again, I've heard some comments you've made elsewhere. Um, I mean, but just sticking with the RSA um, document, it's not good news for the Russians. I don't think it's necessarily a big deal for the Russians in that there's there's other markets which are opening up, so it's not such a big hit. But it, as you say, it's very very clear to them what they can and can't do. It doesn't really do too much for U.S. producers, does it? Because you still got to compete with the rest of the world on price. Well, you do, and and you know, I mean, that's one of the reasons that we're focused on ISL. That uh, to us is the competitive end of the business. It's also where our expertise is. It's you know, I mean, it's, it's just a simpler process. It's shorter uh, permitting times, it's lower CapEx, it's much shorter reclamation, along with definitive reclamation. Uh, you can actually sign off and walk away from the project when you're done. Very difficult to do on, on more of the conventional aspects um, where you have, you know, the apparently never ending or, or certainly quasi-permanent, uh, uh, you know, sampling and monitoring that goes along with those. So. Uh, you know, we, we never were a big uh, proponent of the 232 or the government subsidies uh, for the domestic industry, thinking that, uh, you know, realistically, you have to stand on, on your own feet and move forward with uh, the ability to compete. And, and so that, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, if they send a check, we'll cash it. But, uh, you know, that's not what we want to build the company on. Uh, we want to build the company on our own two feet and being able to compete on a worldwide basis. So. Uh, okay, so so that I mean that no, no direct subsidies, but uh, you know I, I do find the support uh, on the end product coming back in to, to be a, a very positive, uh, about as positive as we could get without a direct subsidy, really. And uh, so I like that aspect of it. Well, that's literally going to be my next question around, you know, we, we no longer hear talk of, you know, subsidies um, or tariffs or this 150 million bucks, which was being flouted around for three, four months ago. Um, which comes on to your strategy of you know perhaps which again I do I do I do want to get on to uh, in a second because it just makes a whole bunch of uh, sense. It's just on one final thing on the macro is like how do you think the main players have played it during this COVID period because obviously we were talking about Rosatom the Department of Commerce there but there's also all the utility players there's Cameco have made some decisions uh, Kazatom Prom have made some decisions. Um, it all affects the supply side. So, what's your take on how that thing, how that played out? Because we discussed it last time. It's a bit of a mixed one, so I'll just sort of hit hit around at it. If you want to follow up on any, we can do that. But you know, because that a problem uh, reductions that they made a year ago and continuing those on is is certainly a, a positive. Um, you know, with well well field development, if you ever actually shut them down, they don't ever come back and produce at full capacity. 
so, you know, we, we, we view their behavior as quite responsible in, in this environment. And uh, here again, supportive. Uh, I, I'll use that term over and over again in terms of the market pricing. I don't think any of these things, especially taken individually, are going to see a you know, huge upswing in the price, at least not yet. But uh, cumulatively, they're all supportive. Uh, similarly, Cameco, you know, they, they've got a bit of an interesting decision. You know, it costs them almost as much to keep Cigar Lake uh, on standby as it does to run the thing. Uh, you know, it's not an inexpensive standby project. It's a technological marvel. Um, you know, with, with holding the ocean uh, or the equivalent of an ocean back in terms of water and, and freezing it, uh, but not an inexpensive proposition. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, you, you've got a very complex situation there. I've seen an analysis done that shows that they could actually uh, uh, go into the spot market and lose money for another five to eight pounds or five to eight dollars a pound. Uh, on their shorter term contracts simply to allow the price to rise so that they get higher prices on longer term contracts, which would dwarf uh, in the three to five year period any losses they might sustain in the immediate period uh, and beef their book up. So I guess I was a, a, a little surprised they renewed production as quickly as possible, but given the cost to keep it in standby, I wasn't surprised. So it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a trade-off and I'm sure they've got uh, uh, you know, not only market analysts, but a series of engineers and, um, you know, essentially running real-time feasibility studies on a day-to-day -day basis on trade-offs as to, uh, you know, at what point do we produce versus what point do we sit, at what point do we uh, honor the contracts with our internal feed versus, uh, you know, going into the spot market. So, uh, you know, I, I think they've, uh, it's it's hard to fault their their movement given their situation and not given the level of detail that, you know, the public has so I, I think in general, the big performers have been. And of course, you know, Ranger going down in uh, early 2021 and Australia is you know, going to be a huge impact. Uh, um, you know, it's, it's not that many pounds anywhere near it was at its uh, peak production. But still, it's, you know, it's a former top 10 producer in the world that's uh, no longer. It's not an intermittent shutdown. It's a shutdown and exhaustion as, as well as the uh, Kamenak in, uh, in Niger. Uh, here again, one of the formerly really, really big mines that's that's done, and uh, having those removed uh, is is highly significant uh, in the long run. And uh, so you put you know several of these events together. Here again, none of them are earth shattering in in their own right, but it's the cumulative effect of of a number of small uh, pluses, uh, I think, and uh, you know developments on the consumption side as well. And, you know, we've returned to pre-COVID levels of, of nuclear demand just recently, which is uh, surprising to me. I didn't think it'd come back this quickly, but here again, very supportive. So it's, yeah, it, it, interesting. I do want to come back to you on some of those because it's very, very interesting what you say uh, about Cameco. Um, you, obviously it's an engineering feat, an engineering marvel. There's a lot of water, Involved around the Arthur, you know, in in the area, and when people talk about Athabasca uh, Basin projects, people don't perhaps they underestimate the the technical feat of uh, freeze walls, and uh, thankfully it's very very high grade. Uh, there kind of helps out with the economics somewhat, but there's some um, some wonderful marvels of engineering uh, for sure. Did that kind of te temper your thoughts about you know where you went and uh, so I'm getting ahead of myself here, but where you went and looked for potential M and A? Did you ever consider Athabasca? No, um, and I wouldn't say that we would categorically rule it out, but here again, uh, with few exceptions, and there are a few, um, you know the the 
literally water, ocean of water there is something you're going to have to deal with. And it, it really contributes to the long lead time. The deposits are, are huge. You know, the prize at the end of the exploration tunnel is, is you know, a great prize. But uh, in reality, it limits the number of potential people that will be able to take it and put it in production to, to a very, very small, perhaps a phone booth full of uh, potential buyers, uh, not even a small room. And, uh, you know, we've had a couple of really class, world-class deposits on the market for you know, quite a few years now. And, uh, you know, if anything, we have fewer potential suitors for those than we did four or five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. Um, undoubtedly, they'll make production undoubtedly and when they do it'll be substantial and big um but you know you just don't have that uh, uh timeline and uh, relative low cost and things of that nature you know if, if we had a, if we were a two billion dollar market cap company or three or five or you know one of the 800 pound gorillas in the room we'd probably be looking at athabasca because our timeline to production you know, maybe it's 10 years and maybe that's fine uh, but the sustaining capital just to get to the production, not to mention your capex and, and then the development time, um, it's just not well suited for a small company, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, we're being production oriented. And in fact, we think it's vital to, to be a producer. And that's what we built our whole company around is, is reaching that status. Um, it, it's just not an entry point for a small, uh, relatively small company. So uh, I well, I wouldn't rule it out. I certainly put it pretty low on, on our list and not because of its prospectivity, but because of the economic realities associated with it. And, and I think our, uh, quite frankly, our crew's uh, well suited. Uh, you know, we, we, we used to, uh, I, I guess, with a, a, a bit uh, silly, have T-shirts that said, uh, you know, un, unlike uh, Cameco, we prefer our uranium deposits underwater. And um, it just is a simple economic fact that ISL is a whole lot cheaper and yes, much lower grade, but it's an entirely different operation with entirely different metrics and one that's much better suited to the smaller company. It is, it is. Um, talk to me about your view on how the utilities have played this because you gave us a clear earlier, you said, you know, they're wearing a couple of hats. They're wearing a couple of hats. You've got to, as a CEO, as, you know, smile and say, yeah, well, well, well done everyone. Nice. Nice Russian suspension agreement. It's one of the big, not, and yet another hurdle out of the way. You've got the election to come, um, but and I've spoken to a few CEOs who, you know, are off the record or you know, quietly fuming at, the, at the being being played by the utilities this whole time. I mean, where do you sit? You know, I, I, I think you have to look at the, a bit of the makeup of the nuclear fuel buyers. First off, you can have them all in, in a relatively small tent. Uh, you know. 50 or 60 of them probably are the, the bulk of the, the world market. Uh, they tend very much to be herd animals. Um, they Most of them have been in the business for an awfully long time. And, and I think I may have even mentioned in our last uh, interview that, you know, everybody I think out there is aware of the impending supply demand issue and the crunch. And everyone's just, uh, it's almost a bit of musical chairs. They just hope the music doesn't stop on their watch. Um, and they've also been... Uh, you made quite comfortable with just in time supplying in a, in a, you know, what's become a buyer's market on the spot side. So a certain element of comfort on their side that I'm somewhat envious of, I suppose, uh, you know, just in a pure economic sense, uh, you know, that there are ultimate customers. So I'm not going to, you know, uh, we, we obviously depend upon them. Uh, would I have preferred them to have been a bit more supportive of, uh, you know, perhaps their, their, 
us guys at the bottom end of the food chain. Um, yes, I, I would have preferred that. But, uh, you know, all in all, I, I've always maintained that a really good, healthy agreement is when everyone walks away just a little dissatisfied and uh, no one thinks they've really taken advantage of anyone. That's usually what makes a really good agreement. It's not where everyone's happy because if everyone's happy, they probably missed something um, in, in the agreement. So I think this is a classic case of that. Every, everyone's a little unhappy and everyone thinks they could have done a little bit better, but you know, in general, it's, it's functional. Okay. So this bear market has been going some time, you know, when we talked last time, you know, I said you, you called it when others hadn't, you weren't going to rush uh, to the party because you knew the music hadn't started yet. Um, what do you think, wh- where are we in towards the end of this bear market for uranium? What's, what's the timing? I think the bear market's over. Um, does not necessarily mean we're in a raging bull either. Uh, I think that, uh, as, as I said, I think in you know, the next 12 to 18 months are very supportive in terms of pricing. Uh, we've got a whole series of undercurrents that are slightly positive to some of them just outright positive with very few really negative uh, things overhanging the market. So I think, uh, you know, to use a, a market term, we'll, we'll drift higher over the next 12 months. And, you know, whether it's 12 or 18 or 24, nobody really knows. But in this business, I don't think you're going to predict within 12 months more more than that certainty. So uh, we, we feel that we'll be into a much stronger market sometime in that window. And, you know, obviously we bracketed it. So we're looking at 18 months, but 12 wouldn't uh, surprise us. 24 wouldn't surprise us. Um, you know, 18 would be ideal because it allows us to execute our strategy uh, a bit better. And, you know, that would be optimal for us. So, you know, uh, but, but, you know, we, we've certainly, and I think even last time I said, I think we've seen the lows and, you know, we're, we're more convinced of that than ever. Um, so I think we're in a supportive market in the, you can call it the early stages of the bull market, or you can, or maybe the dull stages of the bull market before there's, you know, widespread acceptance or, or widespread buy-in to the concept. But uh, I think pretty clearly the, the bad times are behind us, uh, you know, and now we're in a transition to the good times. We certainly aren't there yet, but, uh, you know, it, uh, Bill, you, 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 the, you, the uranium market's a bit like an ocean tanker, not, not a PT boat. It, it, you know, it makes big turns and they tend to be somewhat more lasting and, that, that, so that's our, our take. We, we better start talking about your strategy because you're, you're starting to sound like those other CEOs that are getting excited. Um, uh, so when we spoke last time. Tempered excitement. Tempered excitement. <laughs> always. Tempered. Yeah, quietly confident. Um, when we spoke last time, I think, you know, the, the price, of, you know, reached up to 33, 34 bucks. Um, so it's, it's obviously dropped back again. I think there's been a slight tempering in the marketplace because there's been no, no real meaningful activity. A lot of the catalysts have come and gone. No one's really doesn't hasn't changed hasn't changed the thing, um, but I want to talk about your strategy because that that to me was the the smart bit in all of this. You were quite clear because when people were talking to me before I interviewed you last time, I said, "Oh, brachia this, brachia that, it's all good." You were quite honest and said, "Look, um, that's that's got some value further down the line, but I am very much focused on a production orientated base." That's what, that, that's what you wanted to uh, talk about. You were talking about M&A. You said you knew what all the pro- possibilities were. You couldn't tell me what they were. But acquisition and M&A was a big part of, of uh, how you're going to do things moving forward. Now, obviously, recent news, um, you signed binding agreements to acquire West Waterhouse resources, uranium production and resource assets. So let's, let's start with 
Let's start with um, if you could be clear about what your strategy is, if it's changed at all from what you told me and where this fits in the mix and is there more to come? Sure, sure. Um, I, I guess I'm not one to reinvent the wheel. Uh, you know, we, we essentially are following uh, uh, the strategy that uh, took energy metals to, to its ultimately ultimate success selling out to uranium one during the last cycle. Uh, I've got a bit stronger technical team this time. We've got virtually the entire technical team we had before, plus some aug significant augmentations, not the least of which is bringing Paul Gorenson in as CEO. Brings a lot of vitality in. Um, most of the plants in the U.S. he's had something to do with over his career, so you know we're we're in great great hands there. But um, you know, it, it, energy metals just for a bit of recap, we did five M and A's in 30 months, and here again, I don't expect to see that. Uh, uh, much of a skyrocket in terms of uranium prices. I think this time will be half as many fireworks, but uh, it'll last a whole lot longer, if you will. Um, you know, that one got, a, got I think, higher and faster. The, ma the magnitude of the peak was much higher than I think anyone expected. Uh, so something a bit more down to earth. Uh, you know, here again, doesn't mean it couldn't happen again. If there are a few little twists in the market, it certainly could. But uh, we think we'll see something a lot more uh, reasonable, not quite so strat stratospheric, but considerably more long in, in terms of the cycle length and the duration. So we think the M&A cycle or, or strategy is sound. Uh, not too many people in this space like it. You don't see a lot of it. Uh, that goes into the whole junior sector. Uh, you see more of it at the upper end. Uh, it's, it's clearly uh, more economical to buy assets than to create them. Um, I'm not aware of too many instances where it's not a significant economic benefit to, to acquire something. Um, and this, this was our first step in energy metals. We acquired uh, the Hobson plant, which is now a part of UECs that uh, was, you know, we re rebuilt it pretty much from scratch, went in and essentially bulldozed it and rebuilt it with most of our current team. Then Uranium One uh, eventually sold it uh, after my departure to uh, uh, UEC. And it's a, it's a fine plant. But it just demonstrates that, uh, you know, if those licenses are valuable in terms of time and money, it takes a lot of time and a lot of money to get a production license. The plant obviously is a bonus, but it's a physical thing you can build or, or renovate. Um, you know, we're, we're if, you know, if we were to jump on Rosita, which is one of the two plants we acquired from Uranium Resources, you know, we could have it up and running certainly well within 12 months and, uh, you know, with a, with a fairly insignificant uh, expenditure. Of course, we're evaluating our options, uh, upgrading it and expanding it's obviously an option. Uh, we also have the Kingsville plant that was part of this. So in essence, we've taken the first step we took in energy metals, except much bigger. We have two production licenses, two plants, both of which are in better shape than the one we acquired last time. Uh, one of them is very close to production. Uh, you know, you don't go in and just flip a switch, but with uh, you know just a bit of sprucing up, it, it would be in production ready uh, mode. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got a bit of drilling to do to bring things up to 43101 standards in Texas. Uh, there, there are some historic pounds there to feed the plants. Uh, certainly some exploration successes and, and a host of known deposits in, in the general area that, uh, you know, we, we certainly could move into. And that, of course, will be the heart of the activity over the next 12 months. But that does not mean that we're necessarily through. Uh, I view this as the first step. Obviously, you can have no assurances that you'll be successful, just as this deal you know, this one was on, in the cooker for the better part of a year. And I'd say in terms of serious uh, work and negotiations, uh, a good intense six months. I mean, we were we were fairly serious about last time we spoke. And of course, you know, I couldn't divulge that at the time, but these things take a lot of time. They, they aren't simple. You know, uh, 
just you know, one of the complexities that you don't have in, in virtually any other industry is the transfer and acceptance, not only by both parties, but of the regulatory authorities on those licenses and uh, you know the ability and, and technological know-how to to handle that reclamation, production, et cetera. So, you know, it's it's not as simple as uh, maybe a merger in the gold business, but uh, there are other targets out there. There are other opportunities out there. Uh, we do not see ourselves being a a one geographic location producer ultimately. So we're we're certainly keen on on expansion, uh, but certainly the first step, and there'll be a bit of digestion required to get this one. You know, put to bed and and headed in the right direction. But uh, you know, we're we're already uh, you know looking at other options. So okay, uh, we're, we're already looking at our next. We see a series of these, and I guess the real key is is where do we see the market? Uh, you know, let's take ourselves away from that for a moment and fast forward to five years down the road when we're in the heart of a of a good uranium cycle that may last a decade or or more in terms of solid pricing without these significant fall offs that we've experienced. And, and I see there being one domestic conventional producer uh, that's dominant, maybe not the only one, but the one that's dominant. And uh, I see one dominant ISL producer. And, and I'm looking at that from the market need, not so much from the existing system. But the economics of having six or seven small ISR producers are not particularly efficient. You know, you start factoring in uh, somewhat excessive and, and somewhat bloated GNAs on, on many of those and, uh, you know, limits to their production capability. And, and you start seeing why organizations like Cameco have multiple production centers operating under a central organization. And it makes sense even at a sm somewhat smaller scale just within the ISL industry in the U.S., which, of course, is what has our focus. Okay, well, you're going to where, I, where I wanted, I hope we would go, okay, because okay, you talked about production-oriented at base. You said there's no more need for exploration. There's, there's enough targets, uh, enough, uh, enough development targets out there. You know where they all are. It's a question of, you know, which ones you prioritize. That's what you told me last time, you, you know, because some are more substantive than others. You're getting into an area which we've been talking about for the past couple of months uh, in the in some of the uranium um, series that we're doing, which is who's going to survive and who's not. Will there be consolidation? Because what you've said about timing, 12 months, 18 months will scare the living daylights out of some of these CEOs who just haven't got the ability, haven't got the cash or the ability to raise cash to keep the lights on. So do you see more consolidation or do you see companies just going under? I think there'll be consolidation where there's quality assets. You know, there may be one or two of them out there that, uh, uh, you know, and I'm not, I don't have anybody in mind when I say that, but there, there may be one or two out there that have uh, you do, you, you know, quite you, marginal assets. You, you do. And you have some people in mind. Yeah. Well, I might have one, but anyway, um, you know, there, there's, there's some out there that may not, uh, uh, make it because they don't have the depth of team, um, which is, you know, this this business is personnel, 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 and, and technological know-how. And here again, I put our team up against anybody's in the business. We've spent a lot of time getting it, collecting it, and and keeping them happy. And it's, it's really a bit of a family. And uh, we all work incredibly well together. And uh, I think that's, uh, you know, a, a certainly as big a strength as any we have, perhaps our biggest strength. And a lot of the companies you're talking about may not have that, uh, and there's one or two that might not make it. But for the most part, the assets underlying these small companies are, are good assets. So I don't see them going under. I think some will probably be brought to the altar perhaps ahead of time sooner than they'd like to be, and perhaps not with the dance partner they've chosen. 
but I, I think you will see a wave of consolidation. I think it's healthy for the industry. It's, it's certainly healthy for the U.S. Uh, in terms of its ability to produce, uh, you know, a, a highly sensitive commodity in uranium. So I, I think national security-wise, it makes sense. Economically, it makes sense. And I think you'll see uh, a wave of it. Now, you know, whether that develops in the next six months or 18 months or 24, I, you know, I can't tell you. But, uh, uh, you know, it's usually the ego that gets in the, in the way of co completing ac uh, consolidations and acquisitions. And, uh, you know, we, we don't uh, really have that at stake. If, if it makes more sense for someone to come and consolidate us as long as we're part of the project moving forward, uh, then that might be the way to go. At the moment, uh, we certainly plan to be on the other side of that. But, uh, you know, we, we're open to whatever makes sense to build a viable long-term business. Our, it really comes down to exit strategy. And our exit strategy is not to sell our stock or to be bought out. Our exit strategy is to have an ongoing viable company that uh, produces revenue and, uh, and a very valuable commodity at a profit and uh, have a sustaining company and, and build a multi-billion dollar enterprise that uh, moves on. That is a business strategy that will bring about its own exit strategy. So we don't really concentrate on exit strategy. Quite frankly, running a company and building it is, is a full-time job don't have time to think about an exit strategy. The, the real job at hand is to build a viable company. Yeah, you're delivering the, the, the current strategy. But let me talk to you about this, because in the last cycle, they sort of run up when, when, the, when the price of uranium went up to whatever it was, 140. But yet there's surge of new companies. And I think people have already stepped into this market thinking, oh, we'll just repeat that. And we're not, we're not actually in the business of producing uranium or building a uranium company. Right. We just need to buy a uranium license somewhere. We'll list it. There'll be There's always dumb money out there. It'll be fine. That's our model of how we make money. And there's a lot of that. We've just talked about consolidation in, in terms of the realities of actually how companies um, can move forward if they, they if they even are attempting um, to you know develop or produce uranium at some point, but they don't have the technical skill. You've told me, may not have the access to cash, um, and they may not have the scale uh, of their operation, or the economics just don't stack for lots of reasons. They just won't go forward. But are you? How, what do you feel about this sort of slew of um, people coming in and trying to make a quick buck? Can you can you identify them if you saw them? Yeah, I mean, there's certain certain traits. I mean, and they're they're inevitable. And I'm not even going to say they're unhealthy or unwise. Uh, you know, there's certainly a, a, a window for that. You know, I don't recall uh, during the last boom when we started, there were uh, uh, seven or eight guys that show up at the conferences. Well, the first conference I went to, there were exactly two, uh, aside from Cameco, and uh, you know, the that was in 2004. Um, the you know, the proliferation of little companies, uh, you know, the commodity du jour folks, uh, it, you know, it's not just uranium, it's lithium, it's it's gold, it's, you know, whatever whatever the commodity of the day is, you know, and, and then when all the commodities are suffering, they all become biotech companies. So, uh, you know, or, or marijuana companies and, you know, not, not bad mouthing the strategy. I've certainly been involved in it before. You know, I mean, you take advantage of what the opportunities are in front of you. And, you know, most of these companies do have, uh, you know, an individual or two that are technically uh, savvy on uranium. Perhaps it's the exploration part. Perhaps it's the, uh, you know, the, the reclamation, what have you. But um, not too many teams have the full spectrum of the fuel cycle in terms of marketing, reclamation, uh, you know, contracting, uh, development, uh, you know, the, the whole suite uh, of talent. So and, and I think you can separate the two fields into uh, 
those that have resources but don't have production licenses, even if their properties are licensed for production, if you don't have that entry ticket into the processing facility, it's it's a bit of uh, not not that it's a bad strategy, but you have limited control over your own destiny. Uh, it becomes a a buyer's market, not a seller's market in that in that event. Uh, whereas if you have one of the few production centers, you know, I mean, I guess the best way to look at it is go on the U.S. Uh, websites and see the number of established deposits, be they historical resources or 43101, uh, and, and there's hundreds of them, hundreds of known resources. Then go on and see how many uh, licensed uh, facilities there are in the U.S. to produce them. Uh, you know, I, I assure you it's uh, considerably less than 100. So, you know, it, it might be double digits. It's not, uh, if it is, it's very low. You know, it's so there's there's a, there's the separation, and that's why we in both instances, uh, both the previous you know initial uh, incarnation as well as Encore, uh, a real key has been to get that production license because it moves you from a very crowded field of contestants into a very small field, and uh, put puts you on uh, you know a much higher level in terms of the food chain. Okay, well, well let's see what I'm buying into here. I want to I understand why you get to win when others don't. So you, you've kind of got the brekkiest stuff, um, but you're not going to touch those. You're not going to spend too much money, more money than you need to on that. You just made, well, you just, you just um, signed a binding agreement to make an acquisition. What are the other moving parts that you're trying to put together, which would lend me to believe that you're building for you know the, the 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 perfect solution for the market that you've just described to us well for, first off we do have two production facilities in in probably the most pro, uh, progressive jurisdiction in terms of texas it's an agreement state which basically means that they handle their own licensing uh, without going through uh, uh, the the nrc in, in washington uh, wyoming is also a, an agreement state recently um, so clearly we have our eyes on that but i, I guess the the really quick and short answer to your question is while we uh, have uh, this first acquisition uh, well in hand in terms of timelines and in terms of what we need to do to uh, not only uh, you know consummate the deal but uh, move on to to develop the assets uh, to where they are uh, you know key integral part of the company uh, but they're also a stepping stone and the growth of the company is a stepping stone which will allow us to look at uh, larger acquisitions next time around and, uh, you know, as you'd mentioned earlier, we're aware of the playing field and where the pieces are. So I, I think it's a fair assessment that we're probably already looking at uh, what, what our next uh, step will be. Um, and, and it's not necessarily limited to a single step. There's several, uh, you know, uh, different paths out there. And, uh, you know, nothing can be assured that anything will happen. Uh, you know, I'm sure we'll have some competition on, on any of those that we look at. Um, of course, we, like everyone else, think we have an inside track on some of those, and, and I'm sure everyone else does too. But um, quite frankly, there, there's just, as I say, not a lot of appetite for M&A. Uh, there's, you know, most people are brought to the altar. Most people don't bring people to the altar, and uh, at least in this field. And I'm not saying we're the only ones that have that, but it takes a, uh, I don't know, a, it's an unusual group that actually wants to build a small company, you know, build a substantial company through M&A of small companies. And, you know, having had the track history and the legal team put together to do that, uh, you know, reasonably efficiently with, uh, 
uh, due diligence and everything else. It, it's an, it's another skill set, quite frankly. No, and I understand that. And I know the track record of the EMC, five, five and 30 months, brilliant. But you're 70 million market cap. You've done a small deal. I don't even understand the economics of it at the moment. So it's a binding agreement, but what's it going to cost you? Well, it, you know, in terms of upfront cost, it doesn't cost as much. Um, you know, there's a nine and a quarter million dollar reclamation bond out there. That's been backed by a little over three million cash previously. The bond is, uh, you know, likely to uh, be re- to be lowered based on work that's been done. Uh, and I'm not telling anything out of school. You know, if you read our press release, you know, full of a lot of details and it's quite lengthy. But uh, and a lot of it's missing in terms of details. If we had the laundry list of assets being acquired, it would have been eight pages. You know, I mean, we've got uh, separate uh, resin plants that go on satellite plants. We've got uh, PFN logging trucks. I mean, the list goes on. Um, you know, it's really a turnkey acquisition. But, uh, you know, at the, end, at the end of the day, we'll see less than a $9 million reclamation obligation. Uh, we're issuing a million and a half dollars worth of stock, and we're getting $3 million cash for, for the lot. So, uh, you know, what is it costing us? Um, you know, I can answer that by telling you we, we see with uh, uh, just the cash that we have on hand that we could, and I'm not saying we're taking this route, but we could return one of the plants to production status. Um, clearly, it would be on a shoestring budget. We'd like to be healthier, so we're going to spend a bit more money, which is why we're doing the raise currently, uh, to be able to take some of the resources there, build them up to 43101, uh, go maybe a step beyond sprucing up the plant, maybe uh, maybe a bit more modern and, and you know not the bare bones minimum to get it going. Um, so uh, I actually don't think there's a cost to us when you really look at the opportunities that we're getting. Uh, the amount of cash outlay is zero. Uh, the issuance of stock is, uh, uh, and, and, and royalties, Westwater keeps royalties as well uh, on uh, the assets in New Mexico, which are, you know, the, the really cornerstone of our long-term strategy is New Mexico. It's, it's going to take longer to permit there. We've talked about this before, uh, but it's the biggest deposits. It's the biggest district in the U.S. Uh, we've controlled virtually 50% of the mineral rights through the district. Uh, in addition to you know our large deposits, but so I, I really don't think you can put a cost on our on our acquisition. It's probably a bit of a a break even in terms of you know if you look at it just purely purely on the numbers, we're issuing a million and a half bucks worth of stock. We're taking on a nine million dollar liability, and they're giving us three million in cash. Um, that doesn't give you any valuation for the licensed plants or the the huge land holding in New Mexico, which is zero cost to hold, uh, zero maintenance. So, you know, if you, if, you dis- if you discount all of the assets to zero, we're accepting a liability of about uh, six million bucks. Um, so the other way to look at that is we're paying six million dollars in future commitments to acquire all of those assets, which uh, I, I would advocate is quite a bargain. Well, it can it can be um, because I, I appreciate even if you value them at, at zero, you're talking about eight pages of assets. Um, this is an eleven million dollar company you've acquired this from. Okay, so I, I can't imagine all of these are brand shiny, spanking new assets, and there, there are liabilities associated no. with them too, right? So you're going to have to spend money. So you're making a bet on the future of your company, your ability to raise capital, enough capital to get things up and running. I'm interested. That you've decided to say, well, I'd let, let's let's kind of look at the plant first, right? That's one of the first things you're going oh, for. Why the, that order? Well, I mean, the plants are the crux of, of moving. Pardon the uh, reference, but it, it really is the crux of, of the acquisition. 
And, uh, you know, it's what drove the acquisition is to have that uh, production facility and that production ability. Uh, we view that as key. It's the overriding concern of the company since day one, in spite of the fact for a decade we haven't had one. Uh, we haven't had the motivation to move on one because there are expenses associated with it. But, uh, you know, clearly there will be a focus on one of the two plants to get it into operational status because that is the underpinning of a successful uranium company in my mind and certainly along our, our business plan. But why now? So, why now, Bill? Because given the market's oh. 12, 18 months away, you've got other M&A that you're targeting. You can have other expenses that you're targeting. Why now? Well, because the market, the, the plants aren't a light switch. Um, you, you don't just turn it on. We can't wait until the market has run away and then go, ah, let's turn the plant on and put some yellow cake in the can and hit the market tomorrow. Um, utilities, when they contract, want to see your ability to deliver. Um, they have a choice of customers, uh, suppliers to, to acquire uranium from. They want to see that, uh, sure, you've got a technical team that's delivered before. They're familiar with the individuals that do the contracting. But do you have a licensed plant? Okay, check. Do you have a licensed plant that's operational? Ah, nice to have one of those. So you've, you've got to have it, uh, you know, in essence, to the point where you can flip a switch and turn it on. And in order to do that in the current market environment, you also have to have some 43101 pounds to run through it. So that is why the concentration on A, getting the plant operational, and B, developing those uh, historic resources with a bit more drilling and some of the new discoveries into 43101 pounds, which does enable you to in essence, make a decision within a period of a couple of months as opposed to a year or two lead time. So have to do that now to be ready for uh, the market. That It's like duck hunting. You have to lead them. Okay. So, and what's the this license is, what, 800,000 ton? Is that is that the level? 800,000 pounds a year. Both, both, both plants have a <laughs> Per year. Okay. Yeah. And you're going to get one of those going. But the two, the two production facilities that you've got, the two formally producing uh, assets. Um, what do you know about those? Again, did you, was the, were they literally a second secondary issue for you? You focus on the plant and your, your forward-looking M&A is where you're looking for the pounds to come from. How does it work? Well, you know, I think it's it's all both. I mean, you know, obviously we don't, uh, you can't be certain of any future M&A. You can certainly try, you can do your best, but uh, you know, the only one that we're sure of is the one we have a hold of. And, uh, you know, we have to evaluate each one on its own merits. And that first license is the critical one because it changes you from the pounds in the ground game to the producer game. And so, you know, we, we had to make ourselves, you know, this is part of why it took a year. Part of it was haggling, but haggling was a very small part of that. Uh, a good, good portion of it was evaluating the resources, multiple site visits, digging into the details. I mean, you know, a vast amount of due diligence was done prior to even an offer being made. And uh, you know, we, we had to be certain of ourselves that there was, uh, you know, a, a reasonably certain chance of success in terms of not only renovating the plant within a short period of time, uh, but also for a reasonable dollar figure uh, with some optionality to perhaps, uh, you know, go beyond that uh, bare bones renovation and, and uh, you know, conceivably up the production rate, conceivably bring in some other equipment from the other plant. Um, you know, can, whether we want to run two plants or one plant, uh, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that if they're that close together, there might be some operational efficiencies to perhaps build one bigger plant and not use both of them. Um, you know, not decisions haven't been made, but I'm just kind of laying out the scene for what, uh, you know, what our thought process has been. And, um, 
and also have a reasonable certainty of being able to have feed to run through your plant because a plant without feed isn't particularly valuable either. Uh, I mean, it really is because you can truck resins a great deal of uh, distance. Uh, you know, when you're when you're talking about loaded resin, it's running 5%. So you have a very high dollar commodity that you could truck or rail from a great distance to your plant. So the plant is still far more important than having the resources. But when we look at it, it had to be a, you know, a holistic approach and it had to have all the check marks for our first acquisition okay. and affordability. So you put all those together and it was a really a perfect fit for us. Okay. And just in terms of profile, what does the, what do the future assets look like because like i know i'm not going to get too many numbers out of you today because you, you've got you're starting a process okay it's pointless me asking around right. e- economics but isl would suggest that it's going to be sort of you know low, low quartile type um production numbers which you know given the market means that you're going to be hopefully one of the first to return to production but to what does the next asset look like does it follow the same because it's a choice of, what, well, what's out there, right? What's the next one I can get over yeah. the line? Will you wait for the right asset? Or do you think this is a case of you, what you've told me already today, replicating what you did in the last model, which was just putting projects together, pounds in the ground, and it'll be okay? Well, I don't think it's just that we'll put it together and it'll be okay. I mean, there are uh, a series of, uh, I mean, everybody knows the, the playing field to, to a degree and what assets there are. And if you're looking at something with a licensed facility to produce uranium, um, you know, even, even the novice can go assemble that list in about 20 minutes off the website uh, of the US government. So, um, yeah, there are certainly, let me characterize it this way. There are very few permitted operations for production that are not of interest. Uh, there are a few, as we mentioned earlier, there, there's one or two that, you know, have, have you know a bit of hair on them that uh, is a bit too much, shall we say? Even for you, but, uh, you know, clearly, clearly the licensed plants are where you start looking. So you can you can uh, make your own list. Of, you can score this at home, if you will, by uh, looking at the list of uh, production assets in the states, because we're limiting ourselves to the states. We're limiting ourselves to ISL, um, at least uh, you know for the foreseeable future. So. There's a number of number of assets out there that uh, are, are quite appealing, um, and quite frankly, uh, you know, our company a year ago, with a market cap of I don't know 20 million or something, was not big enough to take a bite at at some of those assets. And and now after this first acquisition, and I think by the time we close it and show some progress on it, we'll have enough appreciation to where we'll be of a sub- significant enough size to where we can take that next step. Well, let, let, let talk to me about We're obviously that. looking at them already. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course look, um, and and you've got to be clear about who you go to and ask for the for money. Because last time we spoke, you're around thirty million market cap. You're around seventy million uh, today um, because you've started to move. There's there's some history to what you've done, obviously, and across people like M and A get it. Um, what do you know now about the amount of money? I mean, you talked about raising some money. So, how much money are you raising currently? Uh, just about uh, five million. So it's million. nothing. So it's that, not, not a big. Thing. So this isn't about the M and A component. This is just to kind of you know allow you to kind of build the team and get get things uh, the shape you want them to. How much money do you think you're going to be able to able to raise or going to need to raise for your next M and A activity? Because it's not all going to come at zero sum. Kind of depends. Kind of depends which one we make a move on first. You know, I mean, there there are some assets out there that are, uh, you know, I, I would say there aren't any that aren't double digit. Um, 
there are some that are very low double digits. There's some that are in the mid range on the double digits. Uh, you know, clearly we can't be looking at anything that's, uh, you know, in terms of immediate cash outlay of, you know, 50 or $60 million. So, you know, we just don't have that, but, uh, you know, through quite frankly, acquiring a producing assets, very similar to CapEx on a developing gold mine in terms of, you know, you go in and you end up getting a debt equity mix to finance it from a, you know, a production financier, not necessarily from doing it in the equity market. So, you know, I, I think that you've got to look at it with a broader uh, brush in terms of where those funds come from. And, uh, but, you know, I think that, you know, clearly, uh, you know, I've, I've always said that, uh, you know, in terms of your bite size, you, you know, you, you can conceivably put together a, a package of financing that's roughly in line with your market cap. Uh, to get to get much more than doubling that is, you know, getting it getting to be a bit more difficult. But uh, within within line of your market cap, I think there's certainly financing mechanisms and packages out there that are available to uh, make the right deal happen. Okay, you mentioned you, you could uh, much earlier. You said I, I can foresee there being two produ- U.S. producers in the market. So obviously yourself and who's the other one? Well, I mean, if you're looking at conventional, obviously Energy Fuels has the inside track, has the premier asset in the U.S. for conventional. Uh, you know, the only operational mill in the U.S. and uh, you know. I don't, you know, not, not really concerning myself with that side of it. You know, we, we wish everybody luck in the business and success. Obviously, I think, you know, it's a national security issue to, to ensure a dynamic uranium industry. And there will undoubtedly be more than one uh, ISL producer. But I think there will be one dominant uh, consolidator. And like I say, if it's not us and someone consolidates us, you know, so be it. That's, uh, you know, I, I, I have no, no interest in terms of, uh, you know, being at the the head of a, of a minor company, I'd rather be a part of the dynamic uh, company that, uh, you know, becomes the go-to name in the country. So, uh, and I think the assets we're assembling will, will be a part of that regardless of, uh, you know, whose name's on the door. Exciting times. Um, obviously, Paul Gorenson's joined you from Energy Fields uh, recently. That's quite a coup. You must be quite pleased about that. Well, we're, we're very excited about that. There's, you know, maybe three or four guys in the world with his credentials in terms of uh, especially applicable to ISL. He's certainly done time on the conventional side as well. But in terms of ISL expertise, you know, he's uh, had, you know, run Cameco, he's president of Cameco Resources, handling their uh, Wyoming operations and Nebraska operations. People tend to forget the Nebraska plants out there uh, chugging away. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously a success at Uranerts uh, before uh, selling into energy fuels. Uh, and, and then, of course, uh, you know, the real uh, real big chunk of that was at uh, Mustania or Alta Mesa during the last uranium run-up. He was about the only guy selling into the spot, spot market and, in essence, uh, creating half of that spot price for us every, every few weeks in, in the market because he was about the only one selling into it from his production at Mustania. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we... And, and obviously, we've, Paul's a familiar figure. He was on our board earlier, uh, a few years back. Uh, and uh, I know, I, I think, uh, I can't I can't overemphasize the pleasure we have at uh, recruiting Paul. Uh, you know, he is the future of this company. Uh, he is clearly at the helm. And, uh, you know, Dennis Stover, our outgoing CEO, you know, one of the uh, original patent holders on the ISL process, uh, he's certainly not uh, relinquishing uh, his activity in the company. But, uh, you know, we, there's a difference in terms of time commitment that's required on a dynamic growing company versus one that's sitting and waiting like we have for the last decade. And, you know, Dennis just, uh, 
his, his technical knowledge will undoubtedly assist us a great deal going forward. And, you know, and I'm sure Paul will rely upon him a, a great deal as we evaluate these ISL operations, ISR, and, and try and, uh, you know, not, not only bring more of them into the fold, but improve the ones that we acquire in terms of their efficiency and operational uh, status. So I, I think, uh, you know, having two guys like that uh, at the top, uh, you know, chief technical officer, chief executive officer, and then, of course, our, our long list of other guys, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't be any more pleased. Yeah, if you're building up to be the uh, ISL, uh, ISR, uh, US producer, then, yeah, um, quite an acquisition for you. Um, we're kind of running out of time because I know you've got places to go. I need to ask you about Group 11 Technologies. How are things going? What's new? Group 11 spent uh, an inordinate amount of time getting formed, uh, getting three parties to agree in the private company status in the U.S., et cetera. I can report, and we did release this news item that that's done. Uh, the board of directors has been convened. There'll be a news release coming out shortly naming those individuals. Uh, property acquisitions have, have been uh, underway. Uh, not quite ready to report on the, the outcome of that yet, but there's certainly a number of uh, targets that uh, either have been acquired or are being acquired. Um, I, I think in terms of uh, you know what, what we'll actually physically do, I think we'll have our first uh, bulk sample of a project in the U.S. Uh, done this year with uh, above ground testing of the concept through basically column leach testing with, with the environmentally friendly solvent. Uh, so I think we'll see that completed this year. Maybe not the reports on the results by December. That's sort of iffy, depends how things go schedule-wise. But certainly we'll have the test done and uh, either report on it this year or, or very early in the next year. And then, of course, uh, assuming that that's successful, uh, we'll, we'll be looking to sometime during next year find our first uh, in-situ test site for a small five-spot uh, injection pattern uh, or uh, injection recovery system. So, um, and here again, we'd be glad to just have that underway by the end of next year. And then the, uh, the third, uh, going into the third year, which would be the second full year of operations, uh, you know, we, we would like to be able to start expanding that. What I mean by that is we'll start by putting the wells very close to each other to establish communication between them. And with success at that level, then we'll start moving the, the wells further apart. Uh, hopefully ultimately getting to the 50 to 100 foot uh, distance between one another, which is your standard well field design. And uh, that's when you can start looking at your economic returns okay. as opposed to a science project. So it's sort of the path forward, but we're, we're well underway. We've, we've got a, another uh, separate team that's, uh, I think, a group of equally elite folks running that. Uh, running that. Uh, Dennis Stover will obviously do a bit of, uh, bit of work for them as well in terms of the ISR applications. Uh, but, it, but it's a good good team. So, and what about you? Are you finding with Paul uh, Gornson coming on board, you're gonna be able to spend a little bit more time with uh, Group 11 Technologies or have you got pe enough people to take care of that for you? Actually, I'm not the scientific expert here. I, I, as I say, I'm just the geologist. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I obviously will, will pay attention to it. We've got a you know, big chunk of it, but uh, you know, my, uh, my main objective will be uh, moving the uranium forward and of course uh, you know i've still got a vested interest in uh, golden predator getting into production but uh here again on that one it's it's more or less transitioning into the mining engineers i'm not the guy to build the mine uh however i'm certainly uh one to communicate it and, and help with the financing of it and make sure it gets there but we brought in uh, equally talented mine builders on that side so i really see my uh you know the bulk of my time transitioning more and more towards uh towards that in the uranium business which uh, okay i think uh 
the, the more of this I can do uh, will, will allow Paul to concentrate on, on building the projects and building the production. So. Well, I, you know, I look forward to that because, I mean, today, today for me has just been about trying to understand what's going on in your head. What's the, what's the strategy? What's the plan? What are the building blocks you're putting in place and the order of, of play? You don't really have the numbers. It's all a bit loose at the moment. But as and when you start firming up on those and you get a sense of what that looks like, I would, you know, pick up the phone, let us know, would you, Bill? Absolutely. I'd suggest probably early in the new year we'll have a, a, a much better, uh, well, I don't know that we'll have a much better handle on it. We'll be able to communicate a much more uh, clear picture as, as, to, uh, as to what's happening. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.